Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series this week called God's Rescue Plan. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 39, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Death of the Firstborn. I know if you heard the title for my address today, and if you know that I'm doing a study in the book of Exodus, you will have concluded I've come to Exodus chapter 12, which records the final of the 10 plagues that befell Egypt, which of course is the death of the firstborn. But I might also have spoken of Jesus here. Hebrews 1.6 calls Jesus the firstborn whom the Father brought into the world. Or Hebrews 12.23 speaks of the church as the assembly of the firstborn. Colossians 1.15 speaks of Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. And when the New Testament uses the title firstborn specifically to refer to Jesus, well, it shouldn't surprise us that the title is used in a very specific manner. A firstborn is the inheritor of all that belongs to the Father. The firstborn is the preeminent one. You see, the New Testament does not use the term firstborn as if Jesus was born first and then everything else was created. The New Testament is clear about this. Jesus is the uncreated creator. No, no, the Son, Jesus, does not have an origin. He has always been there. That's not why the term firstborn is used. Rather, what is in mind was the position of privilege that the firstborn enjoyed in the ancient world. Jesus in heaven has all the rights and privileges of a firstborn. You know, in the estates of the wealthy or the palaces of kings, the firstborn inherits everything. And so when the firstborn of the father died on the cross, the death of Jesus has to be understood in that context. The father had given not just the object of his love, Jesus was certainly that, but the gift of the son, the firstborn, is the most precious thing that heaven has. He's the ruling sovereign. We're going to come back to that by the end of the passage today. We've been studying Exodus, and today we come to the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Let's begin with the preparations that had to be made in the land of Goshen and among the people of Israel. Israel, the nation of slaves, was planning to do what God had commanded them to do so that they might be the objects of mercy and not suffer the same fate as the rest of the land. So let's read Exodus 12, 21 to 24. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. So let's review. Pharaoh's been deceitful. He continues to promise to let Israel go. But then when every plague passes, he hardens his heart. He's not going to let Israel go. Now, in the past, he's offered, you know, to let just the men go, then to let everyone go, but not the animals and so forth. But it was all deceitful. But now the time of his deceit has come to an end. And so the first act of judgment falls on the Passover lamb. The command is given, kill the Passover lamb. Then hyssop, which is, you know, it's a bushy shrub. It's dipped into the blood. The blood is brushed onto the door frames of the houses. No one's allowed now to leave their house. They're to, to wait inside, believing that the act of slaughtering a lamb will be enough 
to turn the destroyer of the firstborn from their houses. So who is the destroyer? And it seems to be clear that is a specific angel of the Lord. We hear about an angel with an outstretched sword over the city of Jerusalem, and that was in 2 Samuel 24, verse 16. David, on that occasion, rushes forward, lest the angel bring death to the city. And there's another passage to consider, and it's in Isaiah 37, verse 36, where the angel of the Lord went out against the army of the Assyrians, and on one night he struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Well, as to the identity of this angel of the Lord, it's, you know, it's quite conceivable that it's either an angel sent by God or it's God himself. But in any case, the idea of the angel of the Lord who comes as a destroyer is a frightening image indeed. What's required at this moment is that each family in Israel faithfully slaughter the lamb, pour the blood into a bowl, apply the blood liberally to the door frames of their houses, trusting that that was enough to be saved in this dreadful night. Exodus 12, 25 to 28, Moses is still giving instructions. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So Israel was to understand that the Passover regulations were to be a permanent practice. Each new generation was to use the opportunity of Passover to teach not only how to practice it, but to also teach what is meant by this service. It's assumed that the children are going to ask, what does all of this mean? Now, we who read this today might say, yeah, but what if the children don't ask? And to that, it would be said, yeah, they're going to ask. They ask because the children are being taught to ask. And so there's a role to play at Passover. Children are required to ask, what does this mean? Parents are required to answer. And then the next year, the children would be required to ask the very same question, what do these things mean? And then the parents would be required to give the very same answer again. It would be repeated every single year until the questions and their answers were memorized and constantly reinforced. It was a basic teaching of biblical principles to the next generation. You know, those of you who were raised on a catechism, like, you know, for instance, the Westminster Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism, you understand this principle very well. All the questions, as well as the answers, are to be memorized. They are to be reinforced until the child grows older and begins to recognize the importance of the things that they've memorized for a lifetime. And here we see Moses not just as a leader, not just as a prophet. He's a teacher. He's a discipler. He's telling Israel that they can't just live through this event. They are required to systematize the Passover event as a part of their family life repeated every single year. Now, I could argue that Holy Communion ought to do the very same thing for us today. Why do we eat this bread? Because Jesus' body was broken. Why do we drink this cup? Because his blood was shed. Why are we called to continually remember? We are to remember, lest we forget the dying of our Lord and the sin that he bore and the forgiveness that we have received. And so all is ready. Moses has warned Pharaoh, this night is coming. Israel has celebrated the first Passover, and now the blood of the lamb is applied to their houses. I don't think anyone slept that night. Exodus 12, 29 to 32. 
At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. You know, the description of the previous nine plagues, you know, those were longer descriptions than what we find here. This is a very short account. Moses' emphasis is on Passover rather than the death of the firstborn. However, even in these few short verses, it's necessary to pay attention. In the middle of the night, all the firstborn died. I I take that to mean that the deaths all happened at the very same time. We also read that God is not a respecter of persons. That is to say, it didn't matter if you were at the very bottom of the socioeconomic order or you were Pharaoh on the throne. Every single household, in this case, it would probably be the extended household, had at least someone who was dead. And the loss of cattle, especially in a naturalistic, polytheistic religious system, that also would have been met with a deep and profound sense of loss. And we have to imagine the scene. Because so many had heard of the threat of this judgment, I've got to imagine that many families all throughout Egypt did not sleep that night. They kept watch. And then the sound of wailing could be heard in in towns and in cities and in farms and in villages. All Egypt was in terror and all Egypt was shrieking with grief. You know, we read these verses and we reflect on the beginning of the book of Exodus when the then Pharaoh had ordered all the sons of Israel to be killed. Pharaoh was going to cull the slaves. The night when the firstborn of Egypt died is a night when the tables were turned. It's not Israel that had ordered this. God was doing it. Israel's only spared because of the blood of the sacrificed lamb. This month, we rejoice to see what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada. We also offer thanks for the host of faithful supporters who pray, give, and encourage this Bible teaching ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is dependent upon God's supply through you. He is faithful, and His people reflect His faithfulness. Your consistent generosity, first-time donation, or becoming a monthly partner enables this ministry to consistently and faithfully proclaim God's Word across Canada. Thank you for the important role you play in ministry. May your soul know the delight of God's release from sin, guilt, and burden. For more information, to receive your Freedom in Christ Scripture calendar, or to offer a gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The night when the firstborn of Egypt died, that's a reminder that God's not mocked. It reminds us that we will reap what we sow. If Egypt enslaves and condemns God's people, God will remember. God is just. He does not sweep the sins we have committed under the rug. The only hope for condemned sinners is the blood of the sacrificial lamb. You know, at this point in the account, we can see that Pharaoh's pride, his arrogance, his hardened heart has been absolutely smashed. He doesn't await the morning. He summons Moses and Aaron immediately. 
And we remember here that he had not that very long ago told Moses and Aaron that the next time that you see me, you're going to die. Instead, we find now that the next time he sees them, his own son has died. And he wonders if his own death is coming. Perhaps more will die. Perhaps all of Egypt will die. He has been completely defeated. All negotiation, all bargaining, it's over. And so his only words are, go exactly as you have demanded you would go. Take everything. Leave nothing behind. We have no choice but to admit our defeat. See, Exodus 12 is a reminder of who is actually the one who has the power. You know, if you followed this series in Exodus all the way through, you're going to remember that there arose a king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. That started the story. I had suggested then that that king may not have been an Egyptian at all, but that he may have been a Hyksos invader. That king thought it was important to put Israel in subjection, to stop them from joining the enemies, but to no avail. The Hyksos were ejected from Egypt by the Egyptians, not the Israelites. And then Egypt continued to enslave Israel. And then they said, look, the Israelites are becoming too powerful for us. We need to stop their power. So much cruelty, so much harm, so many lives were ruined. And all of this because people were afraid. They feared that another people group would overpower them. And the irony here is that the one thing that neither the Hyksos nor the Egyptians feared was God. And because of that, they were fools. And because of that, they were defeated. It's no different today. People fear the future. They fear disease. They fear foreign armies. They fear others who have power over them. They fear the economy. They fear. But in all of this fear, they do not fear the one who holds their lives in their hands, the one who will call them to account for every deed they have done and every good work they have left undone. And this was Pharaoh and how his nation suffered because he failed to fear God. Pharaoh, his name has become a byword for the fool that will not fear God. Chapter 12, verses 33 to 36. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Another way of reading verse 33 is this. The Egyptians pressured the people of Israel to leave them. They're telling them, you must go. And I see this as the kindness of God. And I say this because only two chapters later, in Exodus chapter 14, verse 11, when Israel encounters their first trouble, listen to what the people tell Moses. They say, basically, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? And that's their constant refrain. Rather than remembering the mighty hand of God who brought them out of Egypt, Israel constantly complains and says, Moses, if it hadn't been for you, we could still be enjoying ourselves in Egypt. You know, at at one point in time, after the spies had gone into the promised land and after they realized that the people in the land were strong, while they were busy looking for a new leader, they said, take us back to Egypt. You know, truth be told, you know, we can't be sure that in spite of all their sufferings in Egypt, that even now, after the death of the firstborn, Israel might have wanted to stay in Egypt had not the Egyptians demanded that they leave They threw them out. They said, get out now. But even though this attitude was there, God is still gracious to them. And furthermore, God also knew that Israel was impoverished by all their years of slavery. 
And regardless of how long their journey would take, you know, how would these two million people survive? Yeah, we know God fed them miraculously. God would rain food on them every day. But they would need to purchase some things from traders and so forth. And as Moses commanded them, they were again asking for things, silver and gold and anything else they could use to trade. And after the death of the firstborn and realizing that Israel needed to go quickly, it would seem that the Egyptians were giving even more. Just get out. See, you have to imagine that Israel, in the morning after the night of death, they're going from house to house asking for every bit of wealth that house has. And they get whatever they ask for. The Bible says they were plundering the Egyptians. That is, the night when God killed the firstborn of Egypt, it was the defeat of their nation. Israel took spoils from war. Exodus 12, 37 to 39. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot beside women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. This passage has been the cause of some discussion. That is, the discussion is, how many people actually left Egypt? Well, the answer is 600,000 men on foot. And that number does not include the women and children. But there are a number of scholars who challenge this number, and some suggest that the number itself of about 600,000, it's been incorrectly interpreted. They argue that the number should be much lower. However, there are later, both in Exodus 38 and in Numbers chapter 1, a census. And in Numbers chapter 1, that census comes out to 603,550, well, not just men, but it's male warriors from ages 20 to 60. So taken at face value, then we assume that the total number of the population that left Egypt would have been somewhere around 2 million people. But the real objection that many have to this number is that such numbers are unprecedented in the ancient world. How could the wilderness have sustained them? But I would argue that the numbers are absolutely correct. First, they were sustained because God miraculously provided for them. Not only did they have food each day rain down from heaven, But God also provided that their clothing did not wear out for 40 years. And of course, there's so much more that can be said about these large numbers. But I'm content to leave the numbers as they are. About 2 million people left Egypt. But our text also says in verse 38 that a mixed multitude also went up with them. So who are they? Let's see if we can restate that verse. It says that a huge number of ethnically diverse people went up with Israel. Again, who are they? Well, we have to believe that these are, to put it in our terms, converts. They've seen the miracles of God. And as far as they're concerned, Israel was God's chosen people, and they wanted to belong to them. Yeah, perhaps given the death of the firstborn, they feared Israel's God, but they also believed he was God. These people must have thought, regardless of how hard or how easy the future will look, we want to inherit the promised land with these people. And yet still, who are they? Well, Moses' wife was a Cushite, so got to imagine some of that company came from Cush. No doubt some were Egyptians. Others, maybe they lived in Egypt. They had come from countries around the region. And that would indicate why it is that as we read through the law, provisions are constantly being made for foreigners. It's also why as we read through the entire First Testament, we constantly hear of people who do not belong to the historic people of Israel, yet they attach themselves to Israel. 
And for us who read this text later, we're reminded, Christian people today, that we were grafted into the vine of Israel. I mean, writing to the Ephesian Christians, Paul would tell Gentile Christians to remember that, you know, at one time we Gentiles were separated from the hope of the Messiah. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenant of promise. But now Christ is our peace and he's grafted us into the vine of Israel. That brings us to the place where we started. You know, I began to say that this sermon is a sermon about the death of the firstborn. Yeah. Exodus relates a time in history when God visited the enslavers of Israel and with vengeance killed their firstborn. I said it was poetic justice, fit for their cruelty. But now the firstborn are dead. Egypt is reeling under the power of God. Some foreigners are attaching themselves to Israel. And as wonderful as that idea is, there is a much more wonderful idea. It's the death of another firstborn, the one who has taken the curse, the one who has taken the plague from us so that our firstborn, all of us, don't need to die. And in consequence, it's not just some foreigners who have attached themselves to the promise of God. Untold millions of us have attached ourselves to the God of Israel, for the firstborn has died, and we have been made the people of God. John, thanks so much for your message, but help me out here. I may not be the only one, Help us get our heads around the great tragedy of the firstborn of the Egyptians dying. Yeah, you know, it is um, it's uh, it is a tragedy. Uh, let's also remember, however, that we're all going to die, that the wages of sin are death, and that uh, we will, in fact, all die and face the judgment. That's the great tragedy of the human race. So when God, in his, you know, infinite wisdom, says, to a group of people, you will die now rather than later. Uh, It's not that these people died and would never have died, you see. God just calls them to judgment quicker. Uh, But he does so by giving the living a chance to recognize the greatness of God and should we not therefore fear him. I mean, Moses said, I mean, who considers the power of God's anger? He says it in Psalm 90. That is, since every single person is going to die, don't you think that we should consider therefore and repent? So I think that we need to think about the death of the firstborn in that term. And when we think of it that way, it'll help us understand. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every year, Back to the Bible Canada releases an annual scripture reading calendar. This is our most requested Bible resource. Well, the time has come to request your 2023 scripture calendar today with the theme, Freedom in Christ. Each month contains beautiful, thoughtfully selected images, inspirational Bible verses, encouraging quotes from Dr. John Newfeld, and a Bible reading plan that will help you read through the entire Bible in one year. We pray this calendar will inspire, keep you in the Word every day, and remind you of just how blessed we are to live freely in Christ. So for the month of October, request your copy of Freedom in Christ. But hurry, quantities are limited. To request your free copy, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.